Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. This is a CBC Podcast. Scotty Creek is a remote research station tucked among the trees on the northwestern shore of Goose Lake. It's 50 kilometers south of Fort Simpson in the Northwest Territories. It's a scientific sanctuary hidden away in the sprawling wilderness, set up in a wetland that drains into the creek it's named after. The work here, historically it started off as a place to study water, hydrology, water resources. So that's still a central theme here. But, you know, as as time went on, the research questions broadened out. Bill Quinton is something of a camp dad. Want to have lunch around one or something like that? Or we could have sooner, are you getting hungry? Okay, what do we do now? He's a professor of geography and environmental studies at Laurier University in Waterloo, Ontario. His focus is hydrology, how water moves through the Earth's crust. Bill came up to Scotty Creek for the first time back in the 90s. The helicopter pilot, um, I remember we were sort of telling him where the kinds of places where we, we'd wanted to land. And he, he didn't want to land. He said it was just too wet, but it was a little hairy, you know. Bill eventually established a camp, but he's had to move it a few times over the years. Permafrost thaw is a, a real active process here due to climate warming, and that uh, subsides the ground and causes flooding and all kinds of conditions that aren't good for a you know, camping experience. But being close to permafrost thaw is one reason Scotty Creek is so popular with researchers. So hydrology for sure, but also climate scientists, people who are studying aquatic ecology, lakes, uh, forest ecology, greenhouse gases, uh, carbon cycling, biogeochemistry, the whole kind of gamut. It's important work as the effects of climate change take their toll from hurricanes on the east coast to wildfires on the west. The research done at Scotty Creek is crucial in the fight to counteract climate change. But Thanksgiving 2022, a year ago this week, all that research had to be put on hold when the worst happened. And Bill and his team have spent the past year picking up the pieces. I'm Lini Lambrink, and this is Storylines, bringing you documentaries from across Canada. This week, I'm taking you to Scotty Creek in the Northwest Territories. Scientists from all over the world do research at Scotty Creek. Canada, the U.S., Europe, Korea, Russia even, and organizations around the globe, including the U.N.'s Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, use data collected here to advise top-level policymakers on how to combat climate change, limit global warming, and adapt, including research on how the thawing permafrost here has interfered with the livelihoods of the Indigenous Dene peoples. The research station is on the traditional lands of the Tlilikwe First Nation, LKFN for short, in Fort Simpson. Bill held the lease for the camp from the territorial government until last August when he transferred it to the First Nation. 
What does it mean for Scotty Creek to be indigenous-led? Um, it means a whole bunch of things. This is Dieter Kazon. He was at the transfer ceremony last year when the First Nation took control of the research station's lease. At the time, he was LKFN's Director of Lands and Resources. When you think about like past grievances many First Nations have had with uh, researchers, there's always been uh, they take but they never give it back. People have become famous or people have written theses on information that they've gathered but never cited where the information came from or never appreciably gave credence to the people that shared that knowledge with them to begin with. And it's, I don't know, it might be a bold statement, but like in the spirit of truth and reconciliation, like Scotty Creek being indigenously led, we can set a tempo and a level of expectation on how interactions should occur in regards to gathering information on our traditional territories and from our people and the sharing of an exchange of information um, is a two-way street. Like even one of the young new researchers, Amber, she's quite literally like, what, how can I help you? Like what can my research project be on to help you? So for LKFN is like, that's, that's a really nice thing to hear. Like, what can we work on? Well, so it's just, it, I was, it was taken, I was taken aback when I first heard her say that. Bill and Dieter work together closely now. Bill as the director of the station, Dieter as the executive director of the LKFN, with the First Nation playing a big role in the work that happens here. The team at Scotty Creek, they're proud not only of the collaboration and of making an international destination for climate researchers, but of their research legacy. I mean, this station has been running for well over 20 years, and we have an archive that's, I won't say it's unprecedented, but it's unusual to have that length of record at this latitude. But as the transfer ceremony unfolded, a sign of what was to come was visible on the horizon. Smoke rising up from a wildfire burning across the lake about 40 kilometers away. The irony, of course, is the focus of this, this station being on understanding the causes and impacts of climate change. And of course, uh, it's a climate warming event that came and uh, burned down a big chunk of a station. A pair of wildfires drew closer and closer to Scotty Creek throughout the fall of 2022. One swelling in from the southwest, another from the southeast. Bill was far away from camp at the time. He was glued to his computer, watching the satellite imagery of the fires, refreshing for updates from the territory's wildfire agency. It was a grim picture. There's no rain in sight. The winds are coming from the direction of the fire, and it's moving at a rate of about a kilometer a day. So that's when I started to get a little concerned. As the fires approached, so did Mason Dominico and William Alger. The camp had been evacuated, but the two men headed in to help wildland firefighters protect the infrastructure. Not just tents, but research equipment, some of it abandoned mid-experiment. We were just trying to support them as much as we could, knowing that there was a reduced capacity given the time of year. That's Mason, the station's research technician, and this is William Alger, Scotty Creek's land guardian. We're out here for about a week or so, just cutting, cutting away at the fire line and trying to fireproof the camp as best as possible. The smoke was thick, particularly in the mornings. At times, they could see the flames across Goose Lake. They knew it was coming and they were determined to be ready for it. So we came in, we did the fire break, we set up the sprinklers. We had made other trips in to restart the sprinklers just to keep soaking the ground, to hopefully keep the fire at bay. We thought we had 
the camp covered. We covered it as best as we could. And I, I left feeling good. I'm like, okay, we, we got nice clear brush. It's all away from camp. It'll take, you know, <laughs> force of nature to come through and, and hit camp, which it, it turns out it did. On Thanksgiving Day, when I was in town and I looked over to Scotty Creek and I see this big plume of smoke coming up. And that's when I knew that this camp was struck by the fire. Bill heard the news from a local pilot. Called me up and said, hey, you know, Bill, uh, I just flew over your camp and one of your tents was on fire. So, yeah, it was kind of like a a nightmare come true in a way. (laughs) A few days later, LKFN put out a statement about what had happened. The First Nation criticized the Northwest Territories Wildfire Agency for not attacking the fire, even though it was close to the research station. In an email to CBC News, a wildfire information officer for the territorial government said extreme winds had made it unsafe to send crews in. He also said efforts to protect Scotty Creek were hampered by how late in the season the fire was burning. Crews brought in sprinklers to protect the station when the fire made its first pass, but they were removed because they froze and stopped working. Then a helicopter had trouble picking up water. Nearby lakes were starting to freeze over. It was it was tough, um, unprecedented. Uh, no one expected a mid-October fire. Yet there it was. Mason and William had been among the last to leave Scotty Creek before the fire hit. And a few days later, they were the first to go back and survey the damage. It was like walking to an apocalyptic movie, kind of. It's like there's still ash in the air. There's still like, you still smell that fire coming from the ground, like coming off of the material and stuff like that. You could definitely tell it was like, a thick smog in the air and it was yeah it was very daunting because it's like so much is gone like you like we were just there like weeks before and it looks so much different now the fire nearly destroyed the camp bill has pegged the damage to be worth two million dollars the cleanup and restoration efforts started almost right away but eight months later the damage is still obvious Okay, we need to take a quick break. Storylines will be right back. Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. In the winter, you can reach the camp by snowmobile, but in the summer, the only option is to fly. So in the middle of June, I'm sitting in a float plane as it lands on Goose Lake, sending out a spray of water behind us. The pilot does his best to swing us close to the dock, where two people crane to grab the side of the tiny aircraft as it drifts past. Come on over. With their bare hands. How's it going, Mason? Good, buddy. As I clamber down onto a dock, one of the first things I notice is a red canoe bobbing in the water. Its plastic hull is melted and warped, 
A wooden paddle on the floor of the canoe is singed black. Hello. Welcome. Thank you. Bill gives me a tour. From the dock, we head up a path along a small forested hill. There's a shipping container on the left, topped with big solar panels. The camp runs on the sun when it can and propane when it has to. Miraculously, Scotty's power system survived the inferno. I'm told if it hadn't, the rebuild might not have been possible. Things look, at this point, pretty, pretty normal in our walk. We pass between two other survivors of the fire, a pair of orange and white tents called Weather Havens. They're long and domed like giant canvas Yule logs. The Weather Havens are Scotty Creek's biggest structures. One of them is a sort of workshop right now. Its entrance is melted, the fabric ripped, its silver insulation peeking through. The other is the kitchen tent, which seems to be in better condition. We keep going along the path when... But it's when you sit around this corner here and you take a look at, at what we have on the south side of the camp. That's where the bulk of the fire occurred. We're in the middle of the camp now and the devastation is plain. If we were to round this corner before the fire, what would we be looking at right now? You'd be looking at a beautiful campsite, like I'm talking Algonquin or something like this. You had, you know, chipped uh, paths through jack pine and, uh, and, you know, with solar lighting on the paths and you're sort of meandering around through the, through the forest with large buildings on either sides of the, of the path. The forest used to be so thick here, you couldn't see beyond a few meters. Now, the few trees still standing are dead and black. Their root systems were devastated by the flames, and they're threatening to topple over in every gust of wind. The large buildings Bill mentioned, they were another set of weather havens, reduced to their footprints, two gray rectangles that you can still see on the ground. Later, Mason Dominico, the research technician, shows me one of them up close. A good chunk of the cost that was lost was contained within this tent. We lost some really large pieces, such as our DGPS, our differential GPS, our GPR, which is our ground penetrating radar. All these things are running between 40 and 70k a piece. Um, and you can even see the wreckage here. We're looking at four burnt, charred uh, data loggers. You know, those are roughly four to $6,000 a piece. Just outside the camp, Mason points to what's left of one research site. So this is one of Michael Braverman's uh, experiments, and he's looking at refreezing the ground through thermosiphons. Oh, cool. What are thermosiphons? Great question. They're used to cool the ground. They look like big tubes, one part buried, the other reaching up into the air. These ones are filled with a fluid which gets cold in the winter, sinks to the bottom of the tube, and brings that colder temperature with it. The warm liquid rises to the top of the tube, where it will then cool off, continuing that cooling cycle without the help of humans. Thermosiphons are already being used in Canada's north to stop permafrost thaw below some pieces of infrastructure. A church, an airport, a highway... But Michael Braverman is testing out a more cost-effective version. One student already plans to use Braverman's thermosiphons for climate-resilient tiny homes in the north. The walls are less likely to crack if the ground below them stays frozen solid. But as you can see, yeah, the battery is completely fried. The logger box that it was held onto, again, you know, nothing. Yeah. Completely gone. This is what remains of the battery. Okay. Shredded solar panels. So I was laying in my tent, kind of just scrolling on my phone, and I kept hearing 
movement behind me, like kind of towards the tree line. It's my second night at camp when there's a bit of excitement. Amber, one of the research assistants, hears it. Hold on. Uh, we got a bear. And then the next thing I know, Will is yelling like, hey, bear, everyone stay in your tents. Then a gunshot. I'm in my sleeping bag, my heart is racing, and I'm picturing a dead bear not far away from my tent. It takes me a little while to get the nerve to go investigate. Were you in your tent? Yeah, I just I just finished taking off my boots and Mason's like, well, there's a bear. I was like, what? He's like, there's a bear. So I jumped out instantly and I didn't, I went out without shoes. I grabbed my shotgun instantly. I saw him over there right up and I shot, just shot right above him. And then he took off in the, in the bush there. Okay, so you said you shot above his head? Yeah, I shot above his head to scare him away. Okay. So he reacted to the shot fairly well. He took off. I'm probably gonna stay up a little late tonight. Make sure he doesn't come back around because a curious bear is, it, it could be a dangerous bear. Was he a curious bear? He was definitely curious. He was smelling out the area. A curious black bear. Moments like these are exactly why William Alter is on site. I'm an uh, LKFN guardian for Scotty Creek here. So I protect the researchers and the camp from bears and any other animals that may make their way into camp and that could pose a, as a risk to the campers. I also have to make sure that the researchers that are out here are staying within their research licenses. William is a 24-year-old Dene man from the Lake Way First Nation. When I'm not doing that, I'm also... Um, recording population density of the other types of wildlife that I see out here in the Decho, so like moose, caribou. My main concerns are species at risk, so we, it's good to get a, a baseline data of those so that LKFN knows what we're dealing with out here and can make better um, actions according to these data findings that we're recording. He takes his job very seriously. This is like a once-in-a-lifetime job you get. Like, there's nowhere else, else like this out there in the world. So, and I'm, not only am I doing this for myself, but I'm also doing this for my people, the future generations, so that they have something to work towards and look forward to when they grow up. The fire was on Thanksgiving weekend last year. The day after the fire, a Monday morning, there was a virtual meeting. Leaders of the LKFN were there. So was Bill, appearing virtually from Ontario. Bill did not look like he was in a good place. Scotty Creek was his baby for just about 25 years, and to see that it was hit by a forest fire is like he looked like he took the mother of all gut shots. That's Dieter Kazon again, LKFN's lands and resources manager at the time. It's not the first time Dieter's dealt with the natural disaster. Dieter and his family were displaced by a flood in Fort Simpson two years ago. The flooding that happened is that so it's still it's, it's still a tender subject. Um, our family was one of the families that was impacted, and we were displaced for over six months. We stayed at the Rota Motel at my sister and my two nieces in one room, my dad and my brother and myself in one room, and that was life going forward until uh, the issues with the house were uh, mostly amended. Dieter lived in the basement of the home, and a lot of his possessions were ruined, so he knows what it's like to lose something. He also knows how to push forward. The first comment from LKFN was, okay, what do we need to get this thing rebuilt? It was that simple. Cleaning up Scotty Creek is a huge job. The work started before the snow covered everything last fall, and now that it's melted again, there's still loads more to do. 
Yeah, so we were bucking the trees up into about eight foot lengths. That's Mason again. So that they're a bit more manageable to bring across camp. Who has the lucky task of dragging them out? Well, undergrad students. (laughs) (laughs) There are four of them helping Mason and others with the rebuild. Had this been a normal year, they'd be doing research here too. Amber, the research assistant, says it's worth it. Oh, I am so excited. I love what I do. I love the research, but getting to be here and getting to help build the research station, I think is so much more important. Helping the community kind of come back from this fire. And everyone's help is sorely needed. A construction crew of four was expected to get here the day before I did, but so far only one actual construction expert has arrived. Yeah, yeah, like uh, the pressure's on, all eyes on me. (laughs) William Landry is remarkably good-natured about being the only skilled carpenter on site. It is what it is, we can do with what we have, and we're getting by. You guys want to grab another sheet? You got it. The race to finish this particular tent platform is on. There's a storm brewing in the distance. Bill built parts of this camp before, but he isn't a carpenter by trade. I don't think we glued, you know, the last one, the last time we did. The older units, you mean? Uh, well, the one that we looked at, the 8x10, the ones that burned. The first platform is done before the rain starts, but the sense of urgency persists. In fact, it underlies the entire rebuilt project. Scientists have more than 100 instruments out on the land beyond Scotty Creek, and until the camp is restored, most of those researchers aren't allowed to come back and take stock of what's been lost, which matters because the fire has created an opportunity. That might sound odd, the research station burning down being an opportunity, but that's exactly how the scientists are trying to see it. While Canadian researchers have studied the effects of wildfire for a long time, they usually head out to a site after it's been burned. Here at Scotty, there's information from before the fire, a record that goes back decades, which can be used to draw comparisons and conclusions. This was so important to one researcher that he convinced LKFN to let him return before anyone else. Oh, it's like my baby. That's pushing it a little bit, but I guess it's, to some degree it is. This is Oliver. My name is Oliver Sonnentag, and I'm an associate professor in Canada Research Chair in the Department de Géographie at the Université de Montréal. Oliver got special permission to come back within weeks of the fire, and he's been back a few times with his team. He's not here right now, but miraculously, while the research station doesn't have cell service, it does have the internet. So we jump on a video call to talk about his work. I went to Scotty Creek last week uh, with two colleagues from the U.S. And we were there to do basic maintenance and complete the installation of a recently rebuilt carbon flux tower. It's actually called an eddy covariance tower, but carbon flux is slightly easier to say. As the permafrost is thawing and the environment is changing from a forest to a wetland, the researchers want to know what effect that's having on the carbon cycle. Too much carbon in the atmosphere is the leading cause of climate change. Most people already know this in the context of cars, coal, and livestock. Oliver is trying to understand how much carbon is being released into the atmosphere as the permafrost thaws, and how much is being pulled back into the ground and the trees and the vegetation that's growing. The tower monitors the rate at which this is happening. So in the site at Scotty Creek, is part of a 2,000-kilometer transit between central Saskatchewan in the Beaufort Sea near Inuvik. So we set up a series of these towers to look at how climate change 
and associated warming and changing disturbance regimes affect how Canada's boreal forests interact with the atmosphere, as permafrost thaws. The tower had been collecting this data for about a decade before the fire happened. The tower structure experienced heat stress, and it's certainly not, it is not safe to climb it anymore, right? In all our instruments at the base, everything went up in flames. But fires, like the one that swept through Scotty Creek, release enormous amounts of carbon, and Oliver was desperate to study that. We have the, a unique opportunity to understand how yeah, wildfire activity interacts with permafrost thawing and how the interaction of these two affect how this landscape functions as part of the climate system, uh, turning a disaster into an opportunity. After a series of visits and logistical hurdles, the tower was up and running again. He only just found out the rebuild was successful. But he's not the only one eager to get back. Bill says about 20 researchers have equipment here at Scotty, many of them with the same drive as Oliver. For example, from the point of view of an ecologist, they might want to know what the first vegetation was after it was burned. Um, and the hydrologists might want to know how the fire uh, might influence the rate and pattern of permafrost thaw. And if you don't understand the problem, you can't come up with solutions. If we delay, then it's hard to attribute uh, the fire to, to certain processes that you're observing. It's like coming to an accident scene, like it's kind of, if you wait too long, things happen and uh, it's hard to interpret and attribute exactly what, what, what caused what. Right? So that's why we want to get back on site as, as soon as we can. With all the brush now burned out, Bill tells me the risk of another fire in the area is low, at least for a while. A firebreak has been built that the team is planning to extend, and they want to invest in sprinklers and pumps of their own rather than relying on what's provided by the territorial government. William Alger, the land guardian, he helped protect the camp last year. He'll help train more guardians to do the same. William says Scotty is like a goldmine of information waiting to be harvested. He has big hopes for himself and for Scotty Creek. I wish for a very successful rebuild. No more fires. <laughs> but I also do wish there would be more an influx of more people coming up to experience Scotty and LKFN because we have a lot to offer and I want to retire out here. <laughs> That's what I want to do. <laughs> I want to work till I retire out here because like, I love this job. I love being out here and I want to make sure it thrives. Since I finished reporting on this story, wildfires forced evacuations in a handful of communities across the Northwest Territories, including my home, Yellowknife. The fires haven't threatened Scotty Creek, but Bill told me because of the crisis unfolding throughout the territory, they were going to push the reopening back. We still don't know when exactly it's going to be. Today's episode was reported and produced by me, Lini Lambrink. It was mixed and story edited by AC Rowe, who is also the producer of Storylines. The show is part of the CBC Audio Doc Unit. If you like the show and care about Canadian documentaries, the best way to show it is leave us a five-star review. Better yet, tell a friend about us. I'm Lini Lambrink. Thanks for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.